Welcome to Global Trade Talks, brought to you by Kroll & Mori. Our hosts, Nicole Simonian and Ambassador Robert Holliman, share brief perspectives on key global issues in international trade, current events, business law, and public policy as they impact our lives. Our guest today is Jason Prince. Jason is a partner in Kroll & Mooring's Washington, D.C. office who represents and counsels exporters and multinational companies, including financial institutions, on an array of complex sanctions and export control, compliance, and enforcement matters. Before joining Kroll in January 2023, he served as chief counsel to the U.S. Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Asset Control. OFAC, where he oversaw the legal design of new sanctions measures and led the legal review of all major enforcement, compliance, licensing, regulatory, and litigation actions across all of OFAC's more than 40 sanctions programs. Before becoming a senior U.S. government official, Jason was in private practice for roughly 14 years and served as the co-chair of the Sanctions and Export Controls Practice Group at a large U.S. law firm. Jason's experience also includes serving as a law clerk to Judge Susan H. Black of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit, as well as Deputy Press Secretary to Nobuturu Ishihara, a former Japanese House of Representatives member and Japan's former economy minister. Jason earned a law degree from the University of Notre Dame Law School, a master's degree from the University of Cambridge, and an undergraduate degree from Davidson College. Welcome, Jason. Thank you, Nicole. It's a pleasure to join you. You have a remarkable perspective on economic sanctions due to your senior role at OFAC during a pivotal period and your roughly 14 years of private practice prior to that. There's so much we can talk about, but let's start with some of the context for our listeners. Could you provide an overview of OFAC and the role you played during your roughly two and a half years as OFAC's chief counsel? Certainly. So OFAC is an agency within the U.S. Department of the Treasury, and it is responsible for implementing U.S. economic sanctions. And sometimes the sanctions that it's implementing are derived from presidential executive orders, which are based on statutes, principally the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, but with respect to Cuba, the Trading with the Enemy Act. And then also there are instances where the sanctions flow out of new statutes, such as the Countering America's Adversaries Through Sanctions Act or the Caesar Syria Civilian Protection Act. Now, OFAC consists of civil servants. It has a director and a deputy director and then a leadership team, none of which are political appointees. And the office is divided into multiple sub offices, including the licensing regulatory affairs, policy, compliance and enforcement, global targeting, and legislative affairs offices. And each of those offices report up to the director who in turn reports up to the Treasury Department Undersecretary for Terrorism and Financial Intelligence, who is a political appointee confirmed by the Senate. As chief counsel, my role was to serve as the primary legal advisor to OFAC's director and deputy director, and to supervise a team of attorney advisors who provide the day-to-day legal support to all the different OFAC offices I just referenced. And OCC, as it's referred to, the Office of the Chief Counsel, also handles any litigation in which OFAC is a party. Now, obviously, the Department of Justice serves as litigation counsel, but the OCC uh, liaises with DOJ in helping to defend OFAC's interests in such sanctions-related litigation. 
And Jason, you served as OFAC's chief counsel during the U.S. government's response to Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine in February 2022, which involved the largest, fastest expansion of a single sanctions program in OFAC history. What was it like to be at the eye of the sanctions hurricane during that crucial period? And what are some of the key takeaways from the past year of what many refer to as unprecedented sanctions against Russia? The Biden administration made a calculated strategic decision early on to declassify certain intelligence and then to share that with partners and allies in the U.S. public in order to provide a warning of what was coming. And so it should come as no surprise that we in OFAC had a bit of a head start in advance of what ended up being the February 24th, 2022 launch of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. So in the weeks leading up to that event, uh, we were working many late nights, early mornings, weekends. It was a lot of intense, pressure-packed work, and there were a lot of very bleary eyes around conference room tables. But Everyone had, I think, a true sense of camaraderie and a very palpable understanding of our mission and its importance. I mean, it was clear watching the headlines and watching the news, seeing Russian tanks roll on Ukrainian soil, that sanctions were going to be the foreign policy tool of first resort, along with export controls. And so everyone understood the significance of what we were trying to do, and that helped focus and energize us as a collective group. And as you noted, I think it's common to refer to the sanctions and export controls actions that were taken as unprecedented. And I think they were in many ways, but I want to clarify one thing, and that is I don't think the tools were unprecedented from a legal perspective. As far as the laws concerned, many of the tools we were using had been used in other contexts, and the focus was on not creating new tools so much as figuring out ways to modernize, to modify, and adapt those sanctions tools to be applied in the Russia context, and in particular, to provide flexibility so that the U.S. government could act nimbly to respond to what was going on on the ground in Ukraine. What was unprecedented were several things. One, these tools were being deployed against what was then the world's 11th largest economy. And that, of course, had massive impact on the global economy and required a significant amount of mitigation, which I'll turn back to in a moment. Another key component of what was unprecedented was just how multilateral and coordinated the sanctions efforts were with our United Kingdom and European Union and other partners and allies working in lockstep to try and counter Russia's aggression. And then, as I mentioned, those first and second types of unprecedented components of this sanction surge required a significant amount of mitigation, a lot of thinking about how can we impose pressure on Russia while at the same time not inadvertently undermining US, EU, UK, et cetera, economic interests. And then the last thing is that sanctions were used in lockstep with export controls in a way that I don't think we've seen before. And they work very effectively together when they're deployed in tandem. And that's something that the US government certainly pursued in this instance. Jason, let me pick up on that thread a bit. Um, we have just seen um, the one-year anniversary of Russia's commencement of its war against Ukraine. Um, that one-year anniversary is on February 24th, 2023. Um, on that date, the United States, 
the United Kingdom, the European Union, all launched yet another round of sweeping sanctions and export controls against Russia. Um, it certainly appears that there's no sign that the imposition of new sanctions and export controls against Russia is going to abate any time in the near term. If you looked into the crystal ball, if you had a crystal ball and looked into it, what do you expect to see from the United States and its partners and allies with respect to Russia-related sanctions and export controls over the year ahead? Well, Robert, I think there will be a significant focus on enforcement of the sanctions that have already been rolled out. I think the one-year mark provides an opportunity for everyone to take a collective deep breath, look at the framework that's been put in place, and then figure out ways to enforce those sanctions so that they have real teeth. And we're already starting to see that with the Department of Justice's Klepto Capture Task Force. They're rolling out a steady stream of criminal actions against persons who are facilitating the conduct of Russian oligarchs, for example. And we've already seen a major OFAC enforcement action against Heritage Trust, which a Russian oligarch, Suleiman Karamov, had a property interest in. I think we'll also see an increasing focus on third country supporters of Russia. So persons in fence-sitter countries, so countries that haven't really committed one way or the other, which currently consists of China, the UAE, Turkey, and other countries, and then certain countries such as Iran and Belarus, which have clearly weighed in on Russia's behalf, the US and the UK and the EU, I think are gonna focus on targeting individuals and entities from those third countries that are perceived to be supporting or fueling Russia's war machine. And we already saw that with the February 24th, 2023 sanctions tranche that you just mentioned, there were multiple designations or basically putting on the specially designated nationals and blocked persons list, uh, individuals and entities from Switzerland, the UAE and Bulgaria, for example. And a little bit before that, we saw an instance where a company called Spacedy China, referred to as Spacedy China, a PRC-based technology company and its Luxembourg-based subsidiary were put on the SDN list for providing satellite imagery to the Wagner Group, the mercenary group that's backed by Russia, uh, and for because the Wagner Group was using that satellite imagery in a for uh, combat operations in Ukraine. Another thing I think that's worth watching over the next year is what happens with the energy mitigation that's been put in place. As I mentioned, Russia's role in the global economy, specifically the energy sector, prompted a lot of mitigation efforts to try and protect the US, EU, UK, and partner and allied economies. There's a general license that was issued that broadly authorized transactions related to energy, and that term is broadly defined involving certain sanctioned Russian banks, that's scheduled to expire on May 16th of 2023. And so it's worth keeping an eye on what happens with that type of authorization as Europe continues to aggressively wean itself off of Russian energy sources and perhaps gives the United States more room to maneuver in putting sharper teeth in sanctions, even those that touch upon energy. Of course, Russia is not the only jurisdiction that's subject to U.S. sanctions. And I think you've articulated well the, the, the full effort that the U.S. and our allies are undertaking in relation to that, to that conflict. But as Nicole mentioned while introducing you, OFAC implements and enforces over 40 other sanctions programs. 
So during this tremendous surge in Russia-related sanctions over the past year, I'd be curious, how has OFAC managed to continue pursuing U.S. national security and foreign policy interests through these other sanctions programs? And what have been some of OFAC's more noteworthy non-Russia sanctions actions? Well, it's a terrific point and a, a reminder to everyone that although Russia and the Russia-related sanctions have been grabbing all of the headlines, OFAC has continued to pursue its implementation agenda with respect to the 40-plus other sanctions programs that it, it implements. And I'll just focus on, to provide an example, in the few days immediately before Russia's full-scale invasion and the few days and weeks after that full-scale invasion, there were some major sanctions actions that OFAC took that, again, I think maybe got lost in the understandable focus on what was going on in Russia. And just to take one example, in the days leading up to that full-scale invasion, the president issued executive order 14064, which blocked certain property of Afghanistan Central Bank in the United States for the purpose of protecting those assets for the people of Afghanistan. And then there was also a broad general license that OFAC issued to try and provide U.S. persons and people within U.S. jurisdiction with comfort that they could continue to engage in certain business activities with Afghanistan and, and most crucially provide humanitarian support to Afghanistan without needing to worry to the same extent about the fact that the Taliban, which is a designated person, had taken control of the Afghanistan government. And you know, just another example would be during that same sort of time frame, OFAC issued the Chinese military industrial complex sanctions regulations, the skeletal regulations implementing that program that initially was commenced under the Trump administration and then the Biden administration for various legal reasons revamped. And instead of having it be a Department of Defense program, made a Department of Treasury program, and Treasury implemented those regulations during that time frame. And then, of course, there was a steady drumbeat of sanctions designations, putting persons on the SDN list under a range of programs, from the counter-narcotics program to the counter-terrorism program, and even the, the Democratic Republic of the Congo-related program, not to mention the often used Global Magnitsky program, we saw designations under those programs going on all the while OFAC was managing the huge surge in sanctions activity related specifically to Russia. You mentioned earlier that the sanctions and export controls imposed on Russia were unprecedented in the sense that they were deployed against the world's 11th largest economy. China is, by contrast, the world's second largest economy. And certainly we've all seen and read about the rise in tensions between the United States and China. Although everyone certainly hopes that um, the current equilibrium can be maintained. Um, let me pose a hypothetical to you. If China were to take some sort of aggressive action that is determined to be contrary to US national security, foreign policy, and econ economic interests, what might the United States sanctions and export controls response potentially look like? And importantly for U.S. companies with significant investments, operations, or sales in China, what could and should they be doing uh, to prepare for such a scenario, again, with the understanding that all of us hope nothing like that this um, actually occurs? 
So it's important to note, as OFAC often does, that each sanctions program is designed to address the specific identified threats to the national security, foreign policy, and economy of the United States. And so therefore, no two programs are identical. Every program is going to be tailored. And we saw with Russia that, as I mentioned, there were certain tools that were called upon, but they were tailored in a way to address that specific threat. And so although I don't think we can take the Russia example as a perfect carbon copy example of what the US government will do with respect to China, I think it does provide the essential elements of a playbook that the US government would be modifying in order to address the specific threat that China was perceived to have posed in the kind of hypothetical situation you've outlined. Given that China, as you noted, plays an outsized role in the global economy as the world's second largest economy, the type of mitigation I I described with respect to Russia would be even more pronounced in the China context. There would be a lot of advanced thinking about how can we take action that's going to strategically, surgically affect China while minimizing and mitigating against impact on U.S. economy and, and the global economy, and in particular, the economies of our partners and allies. And I think in, in taking that sort of approach, the U.S. government will be deploying a sliding scale analysis, looking at the range of, of potential actions that China could be taking that would be perceived as provocations that would require some sort of sanctions and export controls response. And we'll be trying to identify ways to take calculated action that avoid undue escalation. And so on the one end of the scale, you could see, and we're already hearing concerns from US administration officials at very senior levels that China may be contemplating providing arms or uh, defense articles to Russia in relation to Russia's efforts in Ukraine. And you could see a sanctions response designed to address that sort of threat. You can also, unfortunately, envision a situation where Taiwan was to be invaded by China, in which case there would obviously be a much larger uh, sanctions response, but I think still with an eye towards taking into account those economic concerns and realities. And I'll note that Kroll is actively helping clients to conduct tabletop exercises aimed at proactively game planning for the various scenarios and you start with assessing the that client's china related risk profile you consider the potential range of us sanctions and export controls responses that could be taken to certain provocations by china and then you strategize about how the company can mitigate risk both now and then in response to each escalatory step as it's taken obviously we're all hopeful that diplomacy will prevail but any company with significant investments, operations, or sales in China would be wise to engage in that sort of game planning now, early, as opposed to waiting to see how things unfold and then getting caught flat-footed. Thanks, Jason. As we get ready to conclude our discussions, can you share a little bit about what led you to sanctions and export controls law practice and any advice you may give out younger attorneys who might be interested in pursuing a similar path? Well. For as long as I can remember, I've been interested in all things international. And I took every opportunity when I was in college to study abroad. And when I was in law school, I did Notre Dame's summer in London program. And I'm, I'm married to a woman from Northern Ireland and have family all over Northern Ireland and Ireland and the UK and 
spent time, as you noted earlier on, living and working in Japan. And so I went to law school and then went through law school knowing that ideally I'd have a practice that focused on international matters and then actively sought out opportunities to work on anything and everything international related at each stage of my legal career. And so the tips I'd provide to per people who are in law school and thinking about pursuing a, a legal career is one is to become fluent in foreign affairs and foreign policy and national security matters. And it, that could be as simple as just reading the newspaper and watching the news on a daily basis and keeping up to speed on current affairs. But it's, it's really an important part of being able to advise clients in the international trade space. Another thing is to consider government service and it can be done early on in your career. I happen to do it later in my career. And I think it, it definitely provides some valuable insight into the way the government thinks and the way the government operates across the interagency when it comes to international trade. And then another thing would be to look for firms or companies with robust international trade practices or business activities, because if you can find a platform that has that sort of existing structure and can plug into it and learn from others, it's a great way to launch a career in, in the international trade space. Thank you, Jason. Just like to end on a more personal question. We often ask our guests to share what book you're currently reading. Of course. I actually right now have on my nightstand uh, the novel, A Gentleman in Moscow. Uh, it's by Amor Tolls, and it's about a Russian aristocrat who narrowly escapes execution during the Russian Revolution. Um, he had written a poem at university that made him an early revolutionary hero, so they decided to spare his life, this Bolshevik tribunal, but they sentenced him to house arrest at a famous hotel in Moscow, the Metropole Hotel. So he's confined within the walls of the Metropole while amazing world-changing events are going on outside. And, and I'm still in the probably about the first half of the novel, but I'm, I'm really enjoying the insights into Russian culture that it provides. Well, you convinced me that I think I need that book on my nightstand as well. So thank you. <laughs> That's a good recommendation. We're, we're so delighted to have had you today, and we really thank you for sharing your insights and wisdom um, as we navigate these unprecedented times. Well, thank you very much. I've enjoyed the opportunity to speak with you and our conversation. Thank you, Jason. Thanks for listening to Global Trade Talks, brought to you by Kroll & Mooring. You can access more information about our guests today in our show notes or at kroll.com slash global trade talks. You can find all our episodes and subscribe to our series on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts.